taking you inside the world of music. This is Inside Music Cast with Rick Such and Eddie Cabello. On this episode, Inside Music Cast welcomes David Gamson. David Gamson has been messing around with sounds, songs, and arrangements for years. As keyboardist, writer, and producer for the 80s band Scritti Politti, he guided the brightly colored, synth-driven sound that was to create several hits in the UK and the US. For a band that started as a punk-based band, the migration to a soulful yet groove-based sound was designed primarily by Gamson. Today he works as an independent producer and songwriter, working with artists such as Shaka Khan, Green Gartside, Sheila E., George Benson, Miles Davis, Al Jarreau, and has garnered several Grammy nominations for his work. His musical heritage was a natural training ground for him, having worked in a recording studio out of college and even having a father who was Leonard Bernstein's assistant. It was the making of a talented producer, writer, and arranger who has become the scritty behind many artists today. Inside Music Cast welcomes David Gamson. Hey, David, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Obviously, the, the influence and uh, the, the, your, your, your claim to fame has been really embedded in the foundation of, of Scritti Politti. But, you know, seven years before you did join Scritti Politti, you know, of course, with Green Guardside, the brainchild of the band, um, he, he was creating a sort of a post-punk sound. And, you know, he even recorded an album by himself even, I guess, before you hopped on in 85. Yeah, there were actually, there was one album and a number of EPs. But it's very clear to see that, uh, you know, once you joined in 85, uh, you know, something really significant happened to the sound of the band uh, with, with Cupid and Psyche. And uh, uh, was that the reasoning for uh, you, you joined the band? I know that, uh, you know, when you hopped on, um, it, it took a different twist. Things got cleaner. Things got brighter or whatever. But, uh, well, the way that whole thing happened was, uh, well, he was on Rough Trade, which was an independent label in the U.K. Yeah. And I did a, like, one-off single for Rough Trade in, I don't know, must have been 83 or something. Okay. Um, which was a cover version of Sugar Sugar by the Archies. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were <clears throat> both included on uh, a compilation together, so we kind of were aware of what each other were doing. Hmm. And then the guy who was running Rough Trade kind of said, well, why don't you guys do something together? And... We uh, worked on a song called Small Talk, which later was on yeah. Cuban Psyche, but that was kind of like uh, the beginning of how we started working. And originally, it was going to be like he was just going to help me out with my next single, and then it just kind of one thing led to another. So it wasn't mm-hmm. like, oh, join the band. <laughs> uh, it was more like we just started working, and then it evolved. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That happens quite a bit when, you know, musicians meet each other, you find some chemistry and, you know, actually find ways to, to, to work with each other. But uh, was was the chemistry good at the very beginning? I mean, what yeah. he was doing, uh, did yeah, you guys hit, just hit it off? Yeah, it was just, it worked really well right to begin with. And even like on some song ideas I had where he wrote a lyric, it was just like, it just worked really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the stuff I was doing arrangements of songs that he had and some of the stuff he was putting lyrics to song ideas I had. Mm-hmm. So um, it just worked really well right from the beginning. And yeah. we kind of uh, were symbiotically insane about pushing each other and wanting to try things. Mm-hmm. So it worked okay. pretty well. Yeah. A, th- a third ingredient, Fred uh, Meyer, um, you know, as the drummer, 
Um, actually, you knew Fred a little bit before you you met. Uh, yeah, uh, I actually brought Fred into the fold. Yeah, how how did you meet him? <laughs> His girlfriend at the time went to the same college I was going to, and uh, in high school I was a bit of a prog rock uh, <laughs> fan. Uh-huh. And uh, anyway, he was in a band called Material, and I thought they were really good. And I used to go see them, and then and then through it turned out that his girlfriend was going to my college, and I was a, kind of a fan of the stuff he was doing, so we met, yeah. and then we just became friends. That's a that's a done deal. Yeah, you know yeah. that that Cupid and, and Psyche album was was uh, incredibly successful. I mean, I think it reached number five in the UK, and it was you know in the top fifty in the US, and I think it had three uh, top yeah, uh, twenty I so. hits. I think in the UK and US, Wood Bees, Absolute, The Word Girl, and and of course Perfect Way. You know, you guys yeah, were which actually that single did nothing in Europe, it was, but it was the biggest hit in the, U, in the U.S. Which one? Perfect way. Mm-hmm. It didn't do anything in Europe. Nope. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, because I, <laughs> I remember I was a I was a DJ in, in high school and college, and you know that that never you know that was always a part of my rotation, <laughs> <That was cool. laughs> especially the remix version. You know, there was I think there were some remixes out there of it as well. Yeah, there was. Well, hey, if you guys don't mind, let's let's take a quick break, and let's play a sample of the song "Perfect Way" from Scritti Politti and today's guest, David Gamson. the song Perfect Way, a big hit here in the States back in uh, 1985 by the band Scritti Politti, and today's guest on Inside Music Cast, David Gamson. Hey David, thanks a lot for allowing us to play a sample of that tune, we appreciate it. Yeah, really. Yeah, absolutely. I was curious to know how much, uh, you know, back, you know, during that time period, did you guys tour a lot, or, or was Never it... played live, ever once. Uh, yeah, I, I was trying to find information about that, and I don't, you know, I'm a big concert junkie, and I don't ever recall oh, yeah. seeing you guys no, out. We, at one point... Um, someone convinced us to go rehearse, to go play live, and I think they even booked a couple of dates in the UK and stuff, and we rehearsed for about four days, and we're like, okay, I hate this. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the end of that. So you never, ever performed? I have never, no. I mean, to me, I always got into this because I liked, I'm a studio rat, and I yeah, always uh-huh. liked recording. Yeah. yeah. So live, the live thing was never really a big interest for me anyway. 
Well, wasn't that actually your your first your first job? I mean, you jumped right into the recording studio right out of school, right? Yeah, while I was in school, yeah. yeah. That was while you were in school. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I was making Cupid Psyche while I was still in, in college. Really? Oh, really? <laughs> I never knew that. I thought I thought that you were out of school already, and you had a. No, I think when we started working, I was still in school. But I think I finished. By the time we were done with the record, that record took a really long time. Any reason why? Um, well, part of it was purely the business end of it, because, like, when Green and I first started, as I said, we were doing stuff on Rough Trade, and then he decided he wanted to leave Rough Trade, and then there was months and months went on trying to get a deal, because there was a whole bidding war, and there was a, there was a whole kind of British invasion of the 80s going on. So, anyway... Yeah. It took a long time to get the deal done. You know, talking a little bit about the complexity and the frustration of, you know, the paperwork and the legalities of of uh, getting music done, what kind of impression did that that give you? Uh, you know, starting out, you guys are young, you guys are could potentially create good music, hit music, and then you had to sort of deal with all the crap of, of, uh, of the music industry. I mean, did that taint you in any way, or how did you guys handle that, being young guys? I was, to be frank, I was completely unaware really? of all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it was just, it was kind of going on in the background, but in the meantime, you know, we would, as I said, I was also in school, mm-hmm. so it wasn't like this yeah. was full-time, sure, sure. this is all I did. So, you know, there'd be like a couple of months where we'd work a lot, and then we'd maybe take a few months off. You know, I was completely, I mean, that whole business end of the business, I yeah. didn't even think about. And, right. And, you know, even... Thinking about like, oh, we're making this record for this market, or we didn't think about that stuff at all. Mm. You know, I I only discovered that there was like formats way later. <laughs> <laughs> What's a format, right? <laughs> yeah. Hey, listen, uh, you know, provision. Your your second album is. Uh, it's one that you helped Green produce, and there were some amazing al- uh, songs on that uh, that album. But one of my all-time favorite Scritti Politti tracks, it really has to be just Oh, oh Patty. And, yeah. uh, I mean, it's it's got everything that I love about a song. Uh, the bass lines, what you do with the keyboards, and I, I actually, I'm a keyboardist myself, so I used to play an awful lot to play my old DX7 to the to the tracks and everything and try to see what you were doing in the well, bass lines. that was lines. the right instrument to use. <laughs> <laughs> it, was right, it was the right, the right year, but, um, you know, like I said, you know, it, it was a great track, but let me ask you, how did you guys get Miles Davis to play on that that that, that track? How how did this happen? Well, you know, he was on Warner Brothers at the time. Okay. So I think the story I heard was that, you know, he would get all the Warner Brothers releases sent to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and he just, believe it or not, just liked the Scritti album and really liked Perfect Way yeah. and, you know, covered it on the Tutu album. Yeah. Uh, and that was the, it was, it, that was the introduction. It was he that actually came first? Wow! And then, uh, and then we were like, "Oh, cool!" And then, and then he was kind of calling to say, "Oh, write! Can you write something for me for the next album?" Mm-hmm. Wow. And so there were some conversations about that. And then during all of that, we asked if he would play on our record. Yeah, that was a great moment, though I have to say. <laughs> Did you guys work personally <laughs> with him in the studio? Yeah, I, I, explain that. I, I describe that a little bit. I mean, when he walks into the room, I mean, did you you worked with him? It was a live recording, or did you track? Uh, what happened at that session? Yeah, no, we. I mean, we had cut the thing 
expecting he was going to play a solo in that middle section, so we always left that open for him. But yeah, he came to the studio yeah. alone. Interesting. Uh, you know, just basically showed up at the studio yeah. with his horn. And, uh, you know, he went out and, believe it or not, he couldn't kind of remember where to come in, so Green and I stood on either side of him while he was sitting in a chair, and he told us to hit him when to start and hit him when to stop. Seriously? And huh. so we did. Hit him when to stop? <laughs> so I we knew. both stood on either <laughs> side of him and kind of like, uh, kind of tapped him on the arm when to play uh, and tapped him on the arm when to stop. So how many takes did he take? I mean, you played it, you played it through. I mean, yeah, I mean, it wasn't a million takes yeah. or anything. But uh, I can't remember. I don't know how many takes we did, but it wasn't wasn't a ton of takes. But it was pretty pretty funny. Whole the whole thing. I mean, it's it. You know that that uh, that solo. It sort of impressed my mind. I mean, I, I know by memory, but I could whistle it to you. But it was so so. It fits so perfect, you know. It really did. It's so funny too because we were like, you know, we'd always like while we were cutting the thing, sing what we would expect him to play. Yeah. And you know what he played was. I mean, we and we'd always kind of find the most out thing you could possibly think of, and it, it, it what. Anyway, what he did was so much cooler than oh, <laughs> anything man. we imagined. Did, did you guys go in there with an actual um, arrangement, or did you not even have that prepared? I mean the oh no the track uh, was totally cut right except but did you envision him you didn't give him anything to play too I mean he didn't have you know you didn't have an arrangement for him that was that he was supposed to play right oh no no no, no, no. <laughs> you don't do that with Miles <laughs> no I think he basically you know he kind of stream of consciousness did stuff and we did we did fly some stuff around yeah but um yeah he kind of just. Wow. It was kind of like played it, and he kind of did the stream of consciousness. You know, it, as, as independent as we all thought Miles Davis was, especially, you know, in his earlier portion of his career, you know, he, I noticed that during that era, around that same time, you guys, you know, uh, Scritti Politi were, you know, your first couple of albums there. He was sort of loosening up a little bit in, in regards to, you know, I, I'm sure he was very picky and, and choosy about what he was doing, but it seemed like he was doing a lot more, you know, not a lot, but he was doing more frequent guests, you know, appearances yeah, totally, on albums. Yeah, I think he had, he wanted to be a pop star at the end there. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. One that came to mind that, you know, I was thinking of was Eddie and I were big Toto fans, and, and uh, he played on a track on the Fahrenheit album called Don't Stop Me Now. Did he really? And uh, you should check that out. It's a really cool, like, light, loungy kind of jazz thing at, yeah. the, at the last track of the album, and it's, it's just awesome. I mean, it's just a, you know, he laid down the, uh, uh, he he was the melody throughout the entire piece. It was great. You know, uh, you I, know never knew, I never heard that. You know what's amazing about that is that in that in that Toto piece that that he played that solo, it is just so I- incredibly uh, amazing that his performance on that fit perfectly for what they were you know for what David Page and the guys were doing. I mean, it fit perfectly, and, and I mean, it was written for it. It was like a godsend, and just like equally like w- with what he did with your album, yeah. it, it was nothing else that that could have fit. It was perfect, you know. Right. Well, you know, that's when somebody's really great. It just sounds like that. Yeah. You know, they just they it just sounds right. Yeah. You know, is is. Uh, Eddie and I were checking out the credits on that on that album. You know, we noticed something kind of interesting. You know, not only did Miles play on that album, but a young uh, kind of Miles wannabe or Miles Soundalike, a player <laughs> by the name of uh, this you know this little known uh, Chris Bodie. Oh yeah, played this you know on that as <laughs> did well. He credited on that? I yeah. couldn't remember. He uh, sure is, man. Yeah. yeah, he was. I think that was called 
the New West Horns or something. Yeah, yeah right, right. That's right. Yeah. Now, he had to be pretty young at that time. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah it was him and Andy Snitzer and... <laughs> he's, a, he's a talent, though. He's a, he's an amazing. Yeah, uh, we've uh, we've caught him in several times in concert, and you know when Chris Bodie puts his head down, I'm like, oh, geez, come on. <laughs> he does such a great job, you know. <laughs> hey, on on the on the track, uh, one of the most uh, interesting uh, tracks is uh, on Boom There She Was. I admit, I've never heard the voice box of recorder, you know, used like that before. I think Roger Troutman did the did the honors of the voice, um, yep. but. Uh, for background vocals, I thought that, that was just genius. You never listened to Zap or Roger records? I, oh, geez, yeah. <laughs> but but on a Scritti Politi album, I think it's the only one that you ever used the box, correct? Uh, well, there's another tune. There's another tune on that album too. Yeah, but, yeah, Sugar and Spice. Oh, they used the two, didn't it? Yes, it did. He, so he basically was on those two <laughs> songs. But <laughs> well, we were big Roger Trauma fans. I'd, later, I, I ended up doing more work with them when I was at Warner Brothers. You know, I've always uh, admired your, your playing and arranging, and I, I think, you know, I think the way you approach your, your bass lines are very, very, you know, developed, and, you know, you lay down some really deep grooves. Can you tell us uh, who your influences are as, as musicians? I mean, it, it's so rooted in R&B. Well, the bass, going back to the, you know, James Jamerson and McCartney, of course, mm-hmm. but then later, you know, Sheik was a humongous, Bernard Edwards was a humongous influence. And we were also listening to all the Leon Silvers records from those mm-hmm. early 80s. Uh-huh. Which was, it was kind of, he kind of took a lot of what she did and kind of took it to a different place. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, just to tell you a few people that we were listening to at the time, there was also Kashif, who was doing a lot of stuff, and I think that was another big influence on how we were doing, dealing with the bass. Mm-hmm. And, actually, there was one record that Greg Gaines did, which was... Uh, we can work it out for Shaka Khan. Okay, that was like I went to school on that one. Really, that was just like the, one of the great Mini Moog bass records, right? Ever, and uh, and of course Bernie Worrell too. So I mean, that's the stuff I was listening to. But I always just thought of the bass as being like another melodic instrument, which is yeah, mm-hmm. kind of you know Jamerson McCartney idea, right? Yeah, you know who else really around the time that was really doing a incredibly funky, you know. Yeah, David Frank. Oh, David Frank from the system. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, I used to, you know, I used to just play those, you know, records over and over and over. I'm like, oh, yeah. what do you mean those used to? Those were well, yeah, also exa- a big influence, too. Yeah. I, I really like it. Exactly. You th- I'd stop it and play it over. Stop it and play it. What did he do? What did he do? That was so, so cool, you know. Yeah. But, uh but you're right. Though those type of rhythms, they they actually made the record. I mean, because every you know, this is the time that you know, which takes me to my next question of uh, you know, you know, I had mentioned the DX7. By the by, the time I mean you were making records, you were already immersing yourself into the new technology, weren't you? Well, I mean, I had no choice because yeah. I'm not the greatest player in the world. So the new technology came along at the right time for me. Yeah. It allowed me to do a lot of stuff that I wouldn't otherwise be able to do. Yeah. Because I always thought of myself more as like a writer, a ranger than a player. Gotcha. So, and I kind of approach playing more like an arranger. So it's not rather than a player. Yeah. So I'm, I'm much more of a programmer than I am a player. Mm-hmm. So when, that's when, kind when, of more the way I approach. Did you ever work with, I mean, you said you work with DX7s, but did you ever have a chance to work, uh, I mean, maybe this was early on, but Sinclaviers or the Fairlights, the big yep. mo- the big monsters? Yep. 
Did you? Uh, I mean, we used the Fairlight a good a good bit on uh, Cupid Psyche, mm-hmm. um, where we kind of bring in somebody to do Fairlight programming, kind of as a session thing after the fact. But there was a good yeah. bit of Fairlight on that, and then and then provision all the drums were Synclavier. Really? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we did a lot of stuff on the Synclav on that album. Yeah. There were such expensive machines. Um, yeah, I know. I mean, there was it was a minute there where I thought about getting a Fairlight, and I'm so glad I didn't. Wow. <laughs> I mean, I mean, what uh, – and describe, I mean, uh, maybe to our audience a little bit that, you know, it just wasn't a synth. I mean, this thing was a, a, a monster. Explain a little bit what potential the Fairlight and the, and the Synclavier did. Well, it did what your average child – Sampler does now, <laughs> which is, it was an 8-bit sampler. Yeah. Yeah, it was 8-bit, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, so... Uh, it sounds you know, really it dirty. Pretty yeah. primitive next to what you can do now, but that's all there was. So, and it was this, you know, big washing machine of a unit, and, uh, you know, it just there was nothing else that did what it did, which was you could sample sounds and play them back. Oh, that was, at True. the time... Pretty revolutionary, right? I mean, now you don't even think about it, but mm-hmm. you know it was, that was a big thing. And the Synclavier made the Fairlight look small. I mean, the Synclavier was just huge. Yeah. Uh, and then there was also the there was like the wave term. Also, PPG had like a yeah similar kind of thing too. Yeah, the, the, those which actually David Frank had one of those. Did he really a PPG? Yeah, he had a wave term. I remember. Did he really? You know those things were so. I, I remember reading that the Fairlights, you know, on the market they were they were going sometimes as high as five hundred thousand dollars. I don't. That, I, my memory was that Fairlights were about fifty to seventy-five grand, but that Synclouds were over a hundred thousand at yeah. the time. That's what yeah. I remember. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I read that that was like the biggest sale, and then everything else in there was, oh. you know, everything of, you know, as time went on, it was under the two hundred thousand. But they actually sold one for half a million bucks. That is unbelievable. <laughs> it I is. mean, yeah, there was also that behemoth uh, Yamaha since uh, what was it, the GX one? Oh my God! Yes, that, that the GS one like or something. The GS one. That's right. Yeah. You know who had one of those early on? A guy yeah, named Michael Keith W. Emerson. Smith. <laughs> <laughs> Michael W. Smith played one. Oh, really? Did yeah. You, did you say Keith Emerson? Yeah. Yeah. And I think Stevie Wonder had one, too. Yeah. Right. <laughs> that, that thing, I, I believe it, it must have been, from the front of the keyboard to the back, it must have been at least three and a half feet. Yeah. It was yeah. Uh, just a, a monster. But. That was a behemoth. <laughs> <laughs> but your favorite bass sound is, obviously, uh, you worked a lot in the Moog, right? Yeah. I mean, it's still a pretty old faithful, I mean... I love, still love it. Going back a little bit, you, I'm going to talk about you know uh, growing up and your your father. He was a musician, right? Yep. And didn't he? Isn't it true that he even ran his own opera company in Italy? He did have an opera company for a short period of time. Yeah. Yep. Uh, both in Italy and in New York for a short period of time. Yeah. And did you did you happen to live in Italy? Uh, were you living there with him? Or yeah, but I was you know two. Okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> and I think we were back in the states by the time I was three or four or something. So you're just a bambino, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what was what was your dad's uh, you know what was his expertise? What 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 instruments well, ultimately was ultimately was a conductor. Okay, uh, but you know his original instrument was clarinet. But you know he did the full on Juilliard. You know he's really well studied. Yeah. So you know you were you were obviously raised then with a lot of classical and, and opera growing up and. and 
What was what was your inst- first instrument that you picked up? Well, I was kind of given a choice at five to study piano or violin. Okay. Uh, and I stupidly took chose violin. Oh yeah. <laughs> which I played until I was about thirteen. Yeah. Uh, and then I kind of switched over to piano. I kind of wish I had started piano to begin with. Nothing. But yeah, no, it was definitely like. You know, I definitely, in, in our household, you were going to play an instrument. You know, there was, like, kind of no choice. Yeah. Were there any other siblings in the, um, the family? You have brothers and sisters? Yeah, I have a sister. She yeah. played some instruments, too, but she ended up being a dancer. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. So you played for her. <laughs> no, but she, yeah. And also, you know, talking about your dad, didn't he eventually work uh, with Leonard Bernstein in some capacity? Well, yeah, that was before the opera company... I think just after he got out of Juilliard, he was the assistant to Bernstein at the Philharmonic. Really? Wow. So, yeah, which was, yeah, a great gig. Yeah, an amazing experience. Yeah. yeah. And uh, what about you? Where did, where did you uh, study music? Uh, did you, and did you specifically study piano when you did study? I, yeah, I did, but I picked it up as a teenager. I had, you know, I had a, a few different uh, just private teachers, and then I had ultimately went to the Manhattan School of Music, the prep department there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then I just went to a liberal arts school to college, and I just yeah. I did study music there. But it wasn't like that was my it wasn't like a music school, right? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but really, pop was kind of always what I really liked. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I did study classical music, but like what I actually listened to was more pop rock kind of stuff. Yeah. You said you were into prog rock a little while ago. What were some of the bands that really influenced you? Well, in high school, uh, the the more esoteric and bizarre, the better. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, there <laughs> was a Zappa. whole host of like Italian prog rock and French prog rock bands that oh, I'm, interesting that I don't think anyone's ever heard of that I thought was great. Throw out a couple. I'm inter- I'm curious. Yeah, really. Uh, well, it was an Italian group called Aria. Mm-hmm. Okay. That actually were, I still think are pretty cool. Uh-huh. There was a French group called Helden. Okay. Which are, I actually still think is pretty great. Actually. How did you dis- how did you discover those bands? I mean, how, how, you know, because obviously they weren't you know yeah, really. mainstream here or you know got a lot of airplay. How, yeah, how did no, you- I mean, uh, it was an import company called Gem J E M, and uh, I would literally scour their catalog uh-huh. and look for the like the one line <laughs> description of what the band was. And luckily, there was a couple of record stores in New York. That were kind of import stores, yeah. right? And they would let you go down and kind of listen to stuff before you buy it. Okay, that's cool. So I would spend pretty much all of Saturday uh-huh. at the record store listening to stuff. Yeah, and now it's so it's you know obviously pre-internet. I understand. I used to do the same thing. I used to look go to the record stores and look at those big yellow catalogs at the end of the uh, mm-hmm. at the, right. end of the end of the you know by the cash <laughs> register and, and try to you know find something interesting. You know that. And yeah, it was much more like you really had to search it out. Then. Yeah. I mean, there was no, as you say, there was no internet, so it is a hell of a lot easier to find. Oh, it, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anything you're interested in. Yeah, but I mean, like, you didn't, it was like nobody to go talk to about it, so you really had to kind of find the stuff on your own. Mm-hmm. You know, so that, which actually added to the whole, the allure of it, for sure. Mm-hmm. Exactly. While you were still a member of uh, Security Politi, you were also co-writing and producing for for several artists. You was uh, um, you you worked on Shaka Khan's Love yeah. of a Lifetime project, yep. and yep. and um, you know that was actually I think even Green participated in some of the. Yeah, well, that one was definitely like 
they like this gritty thing. Can you give us one of those? Yeah. <laughs> so you know, we wrote something in that vein. Right. Well, you know what? I was actually on, on, on YouTube uh, a couple of days ago and preparing for the interview, and I, I found the weirdest post. And uh, I, I don't know if, if the guy that posted this is a, a producer, but I do know one thing. In, in his post, he mentions Limelight Studios in California. Um, but here's his post, and you're, you're going to find this very interesting. He, he, he writes um, right underneath the, the video from Love of a Lifetime with Shaka Khan. He writes, I remember in 1985 turning Shaka Khan onto Scritti Politi. I was working at the limelight, and she came in after a recording session with Robert Palmer around 4 in the morning. He said, and then he continues, he says, anyway, I put on Hypnotized, and she kept asking to play it over and over again. I think she listened to it around seven times in a row. Anyway, she obviously liked it. Have you heard that before? No, because, I mean, I think the connection is much more direct. It was a reef. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is that who it was? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Look I mean, a reef. Worked on our record, and he produced our record. Look at that. It's just a bless us. I mean, that everybody misses him so much right now, but uh, you work with him quite closely, didn't you? Yeah. I mean, yeah. It was a couple of years there where I was really quite friendly with him, and yeah. I did some arrangements for him and stuff. <laughs> yeah. Great guy. That sounds like him. My goodness, you know. I, I, rem- I remember. I'm pretty sure that was the connection. I mean, certainly the connection that, that brought us in on that record was a reef. It really was, huh? Yeah. So it's it's interesting because, um, you know, I, I looked at the signature. It had nothing to do with, you know, it was clueless as to who the the poster was right. on this whole thing. But I, I thought I'd throw that at you. But The Limelight was a club in New York. Really? Oh, okay. Yeah. I got you. All right. I was looking in California and thinking, what the heck is Limelight? Oh, yeah, no. That, that, <laughs> I guess it's probably Limelight. It was in a church. Okay, all right. That makes sense now. Yeah. The pieces are all together. That's cool. Now we now we I got mean, maybe that's true, but I think the connection would have been pretty direct. No, I think the piece the, the, the piece fits really well. Rick, we have closure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were trying to figure that out. <laughs> you know, um you know, I also remember uh, picking up a long, long time ago uh Al Giro's L is for Lover. I think it was produced if I'm correct by Philip Say some um No, it was produced by Nile Rogers. Oh, Nile Rogers. That's right. He, you know, I had no no idea that you um, or that Green had written you know that song back in '83, and I'm like, that yeah, was really you know, cool. What's funny about that one was that was a that was a record that after we wrote Small Talk, I was going to do another single for Rough Trade, and so I wrote that song, and he wrote the lyric, and I got somebody else, I got somebody to sing it. And then everything kind of fell apart, rough trade, and that song just sat around mm-hmm. for a few years. And then Michael Austin, I think, at Warner Brothers actually pitched it over to, to Nile. Really? Yeah. I remember the artist Maxwell, and, and you worked on his uh, Urban Hang Suite. And I think you, you programmed drums, keys, and, and played keyboards as well. And tell me about working with this guy. I mean, he, he can really groove. And did you track <laughs> mm-hmm. with him? How, uh, how, does, how does he to work with? How were the, what were the sessions like? Yeah, really. I was... To be perfectly frank, I was pretty tangentially involved in that. Oh, yeah? Which was uh, I, really early on, before he even had his deal at uh, Sony, uh-huh. I had done kind of done a couple of tunes with him, and one of those tunes was that tune that finally made it onto the record. Uh-huh. Uh, that, And I actually brought, I kind of cooked him up with Wawa, which they later did a bunch of stuff together, but... Mm-hmm. Um, 
so some of that stuff just made it to the record. Yeah. Um, and that was really my involvement with that. It, was, it wasn't really super involved. I got gotcha. you. Okay. All right. I didn't know how, how deep uh, you, you got into that because that guy, you know, just the sound. Yeah. The guy's smooth. The guy's definitely got his own thing going on. And, and uh, I mean, he, he really reminds me very much of, you know, uh, you know, a male, you know, Michelle uh, Indignicello. You know, it, it's. Uh, it was the same period, though. It was like a, we were all kind of into the same. Yeah stuff mm-hmm. there was like kind of a a time there where everybody was kind of we were all kind of into the same records and kind of into making the same kinds of mm-hmm. sonic thing sonic palette you know mm-hmm. right and that's how it sort of overlapped a little bit with what uh, michelle was doing right yeah totally yeah. wow and that was he was after i had done the michelle stuff was so that's how i even at him was really through the Michelle stuff. Pay more attention to to her music, and the more you get into it, the more you find that, or I am finding that, you know, here's one woman that you know she says what she says, you know, and and but with the music, it just really supports everything that you know she writes lyrically. You know, I have found sometimes very much that you know sometimes lyrics don't match the yeah. feel of the music or whatever. But what she's doing, it's uh, it meshes in so nicely because what she says, I mean, she she says some pretty. Uh, she shakes up the world with her lyrics, doesn't she? Yeah, she's also, I mean, just, also just the the sound and feel she puts on the vocal, it's one of, she's one of those people that it makes the track feel better Yeah. when the vocal's on. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like, it's really the glue that puts the whole thing together. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it, she is really an interesting artist, I think. Yeah. How, are you continuing your relationship with her, producing for her, or have anything in the future coming up or not? I, not. We kind of every year or so kind of exchange emails and say, oh, yeah, let's do something, and then and never, nothing ever kind of comes together. Yeah. I don't know that that'll ever happen. <laughs> but I think she's great. I yeah. really think she's great. Sure. And you, you had mentioned to us about a, uh, a new artist that you're about to work with by the name of Pixie. And uh, could you tell us a little bit about her and, and what she's doing? Well, she just was in town. Uh, we just did some writing, and I'm actually just finishing up a couple of those tunes. Mm-hmm. Um, there's her, and I was also, I'm actually excited about this girl, Kesha, that's just done a deal at Warner Brothers that mm-hmm. um, I think she's really great. Yeah, what, what, what kind of feel or what style of music is she doing? Uh, How would you describe it? described it as a cross between M.I.A., Peaches, and Beck. Really, <laughs> and I think that's actually pretty on. Interesting. So to me, but but uh, but slightly more accessible. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's but let's I hope. think it's it's really a cool combination <laughs> of different things. Yeah. Does she have an album out now, or is she working on it? Um, uh, well, I've been working with her for on and off for a, a year or so, uh-huh. but she's just. They just got the deal done, and uh, I guess they're going to put the record together. Hopefully, it's going to be they're going to have it out before the end of the year. But I'm I'm excited about that one. I think it's going to be really good. Tell me about your relationship with her. As far I mean, how are you, how will you be working with her? Uh, initially, I kind of worked on a I kind of did the arrangements and stuff on a couple of tunes she had, and then we just started writing. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we just collaborated writing, and then uh, you know I I take a long time to do track so mm-hmm. we kind of write the song and then I go off for an unbelievably long time and mess with the track 
A little while ago, you mentioned that you'd like to be a little more behind the scenes. You, you know, you've done a lot of engineering. And uh, I read an article recently. It was kind of a cool article uh, about uh, – I think actually it was written uh, up by Oralex, one of the companies I think that helped redesign your studio. Or yeah. Helped, well, yeah. I'm not no longer at that house. But yeah. Yeah. That was a couple of years ago. Yeah. But uh, I noticed – I think I read that you, you're a Nuendo user. Is that right? I am. I still am. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm just curious about that because I I have a post production studio myself and and I use uh, I'm a I've been using Pro Tools for probably 15 years and I'm just I'm buried into Pro Tools and I just I was pretty buried into Pro Tools myself. What made you switch to New Window? Uh the HD upgrade. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like refused to buy the same system again. Oh oh yeah. Uh, it just pissed me off. Yeah. Uh, and then I started actually, well, it was a combination. It was the HD thing came out, and I also just, in my gut, felt like uh, native was where things were going, which it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this was a good a few years ago. But right. it just, you know, ultimately, I just don't see there being a need for DSP cards. And I just thought Pro Tools was constantly, they kind of constantly upgrade a kind of old program rather than so the new endo just felt like oh well this is a new approach to it and i actually find the workflow uh just works much better for me and i act and i like the way uh the whole virtual instrument thing is so integrated in the program it always Mm -hmm. feels like it's kind of tacked on in pro tools to me Mm -hmm. the whole and just uh virtual instruments and new endo and i think logic too it just feels more like it's part of the program yeah, it makes me wonder where uh, Digit Design's going with with you know their you know obviously if you've upgraded to HD then obviously you're you know you're set. I, I don't have any plans on on upgrading anymore because I don't need it at this point. But you know, uh, well, I will also say that in my experience, mm-hmm. um, the native version of Pro Tools uh-huh. is the clunkiest native uh, DAW that I have worked on. I mean. If I run Pro Tools LE on my PC, uh-huh. it feels like my PC is about half as fast as it is with Nuendo. Really? Yeah. I mean, I just Pro Tools LE. I just don't, I think is I'm not into it at all. That, but the the full HD rig, I can I can understand it, and it is in some ways kind of more pro mm-hmm. than Nuendo. I could see in in a, in a number of ways. But I don't find it to be a real creative tool in the same way. Well, being an engineer going, and going back to Scritti Politti, and this is a question, something I didn't research, but did you have your hand in the engineering of those albums? No. I just I started engineering later. Okay. Uh, mainly because I didn't want to have to call somebody. I see. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why I also started playing guitar later because it just was like, oh, God, I just need to learn how to play because I'm sick of calling people. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it's just easier to just do it yourself. You know, I have a question regarding – you were speaking about, uh, you know, the virtual instrument and and where we are these days. Uh, these days, as to compare to years back, are you using a controller right now? When you lock yourself in and you start working and you start tracking on your own and you take days to, to, to find, you know, the pieces that work together, are you fi- using a controller with, with modules? Are you going from CD or, you know, atmosphere or what, what, what type of configuration are you using musically right now? Uh all right. Well, I have a, I have I'm running the window on a PC, believe it or not. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, which was another thing that I was like totally a Mac addict, but I did make that. <laughs> yeah, that's what we are. Yeah. Uh, well, I have like you know a little a little controller, and then I have like a weighted keyboard. But I, you know, the most of it I use this little tiny, you know, forty something note controller. 
But I'm, I do almost everything in the box now. I do have, I've kept a couple of my old synths, like the ARP 2600 and the yeah. Mini Moog. And, mm-hmm. But I've actually sold off a lot of my stuff because I just don't use it. Right. Um, and most of the stuff I'm doing, I kind of am doing it in the box. Mainly, also, I like to be able to come back to something and have it just be exactly as I left yeah. it. Right. You know, so, yeah, some of the virtual stuff maybe doesn't sound quite is good, mm-hmm. but it's a trade-off in terms of, you know, it's always there and it's always the same and yeah. it never breaks. That's true. That's you know, a, that's so. a, it's a whole new world, isn't it, David? Yeah, and also, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of stuff I can't do, like syncing clocks and stuff to the host that, you know, when I'm running my actual real ARP 2600, it's a pain in the ass to do that, which is, and if I use the plug-in, it's really easy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm pretty much in, into the plug-in thing. Yeah. Yeah, I'm curious. Um, what what do you have going on right now, and what kind of projects uh, could we expect from you, or, or that you'll be working on here in the in the coming future? Mm-hmm. Well, like those, hopefully those two projects will uh, see the light of day before the end of the year. Mm-hmm. I think I got a song on the on the Hayden Panettiere record too, mm-hmm. uh, which is on Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the stuff I've been I'm working on sort of right now. Mm-hmm. Have you been involved in some, uh, not necessarily film scoring, but have you added, you know, some of your talent to some film scoring? Have you worked in? Yeah, I actually worked on Mission Impossible Two at okay. Zimmer's place, mm-hmm. and I and I still do some TV stuff now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, really? In addition to the record stuff, I've been doing some TV stuff too. Awesome. Well, we uh, for more information, uh, where can we find out more information about you, David? Um, I have a MySpace page, mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. so I mean, I kind of. That's a good place to get in touch with me, probably. Very cool. Well, hey, we appreciate the time. And, uh, and, yeah, thanks uh, for having me. Maybe sometime down the road we can touch base again and see how things are going. That'd be great. All hey, right. Thanks a lot, David. Thanks, bye, guys. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Special thanks to David Gamson for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. Our goal is to bring you a new episode of Inside Music Cast every other week. Be sure to check out InsideMusicCast.com for continuing updates, including our People's Forum, where you can chat about all things music with Inside Music Cast listeners from around the world. That's InsideMusicCast.com with one C. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast. Thanks for downloading Inside Music Cast, the podcast devoted to the musicians, fans, and the people who make the music business happen. Your subscription is appreciated, so be sure to check your podcatcher for our next episode. You can also visit InsideMusicCast.com for additional content. If you'd like to contact us via email, the address is input at InsideMusicCast.com.